Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Tom Mustill, whose new book has been causing some waves here at Shakespeare and Company. How to Speak Whale, as the title suggests, is an investigation into the possibility or otherwise of human Cetitian dialogue. It looks into the history of our relationship with these creatures, in some important ways so similar to us, in others so profoundly different. It lays out our various attempts to interpret their song and looks at how big data, combined with an open source philosophy, might just lead to the Holy Grail, a, quote, Google Translate for animals. But more than that, perhaps more than anything, it's also one man's quest to make sense of the particular transcendent but terrifying moment a humpback whale almost landed on top of him. Along the way, Tom Mustill asks some profound questions about whales and about ourselves. Questions such as, what is language? How much should we resist the temptation to anthropomorphize? And if we do find a way to translate what whales are saying, are we really ready to listen? Tom Mustill, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let's begin with um, that encounter that I alluded to uh, in the introduction, the uh, the moment that a humpback whale almost landed on top of you. Um, you write about it so beautifully in the book, so I'm not going to ask you to uh, to sort of to rehash it completely here. But for, for listeners who haven't yet read How to Speak Whale, could you just tell us a little bit about that moment that set you off on this journey? Absolutely. Um, I was uh, in Monterey Bay, which is in California. Uh, and I'd been on holiday with some friends and, and for the last on the last morning I went to go visit a laboratory um, which is called Umbari which is like a sort of underwater robot making laboratory and out the window of the lab the engineer said look there's loads of humpback whales you should go on a kayaking tour with them so I signed myself and my friend up for this kayak tour and we went out at six in the morning and it was sort of really misty and I, I'd seen lots of whales before I'd worked on whale watching boats and and, and filmed whales and uh, I, uh, but it was, there was just a lot of humpback whales that day because mm. there was a big uh, school of fish in the area. And the tour was wonderful and seeing them from the kayak was something I'd never done before where you're really close on the surface. Um, and we were heading back to shore uh, when a humpback, it breached, uh, which is when it throws its body fully out of the water and it breached and it landed, it actually hit the front of the kayak and it, uh, dragged me and my friend Charlotte underwater and, uh, and sort of threw us around a lot and somehow we weren't injured 
mm-hmm. um, and bob back up to the surface. Um, and uh, yeah, and that was it really. We, we, um, we, hadn't, we couldn't really understand how we hadn't died afterwards mm-hmm. because the last thing we'd seen was the whale coming down directly on top of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to give listeners a kind of an idea of the scale here, because mm-hmm. um, I think you talk about this a bit in the book, that until you're actually in the presence of one of these creatures, it's actually quite hard to understand the sheer size of of a whale. So you describe it as a humpback whale as being three times bigger than the biggest T-Rex. Yeah. So we're talking like, essentially, like this is like a bus jumping over you almost. Yeah, it's like, it, but it's not like a, a bus... It's like a bus that's been pumped full of blood and bone. So like, you know, like the, all the space where it would just be air inside a bus, that's all just uh-huh. like solid. And I mm. think I'd seen so many whales before, but always really kind of looking down at them, mainly from boats um, or in the water. And it was very different to see one in the air, the physicality mm. of it, it, the sort of really hardness of it. Um, was really terrifying when it was mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it was just very visceral. And I mm. think, I think, I mean, I wonder if actually, like often if we see, see animals, when we see them in water, we have a, they have kind of a th- ethereal, you know, feeling that, um, because we're, we're air animals and maybe we don't mm. kind of get what it is to be a physical thing that lives in the sea. But yeah, when they're it coming into our domain and mm-hmm. just, and then obviously being about to squash you, Made made <laughs> made up. It's about thirty to forty tons. That's the estimate. They think with a humpback, with every foot of body length, you get about a ton of weight. Mm-hmm. And and this is the the moment you describe it as a sort of uh, an act of um, beautiful violence or the beautiful violence of the of the situation. But mm. immediately, like I suppose, there's something about the term violence which which makes us think there's some sort of aggressive intent. But it becomes clear very quickly that one of the profound things about this experience apart from the fact that you you know could have almost lost your life was suddenly trying to understand what it could possibly mean like how how you come so close to dying what the what the whale intended if anything in their passage uh, over your kayak totally and I, I think um well the thing that struck me most I asked lots of biologists afterwards like wh- why do whales breach why do they throw themselves out of the water like it, it uses a huge amount of energy mm-hmm. and uh if if you and often when they breach they do it again and again and again so you know what and it's so spectacular and but nobody really knows why they do it at mm-hmm. all um and there's lots of competing theories like some people think that they do it to show off or as some people think it's a form of communication that mm-hmm. they make a loud noise and that's when it splashes on the surface uh like a display um, others think that they use it to dislodge parasites on the surface of their skin, like barnacles and lice and things. Mm-hmm. But none of those explanations seem to really hold up in all of the situations you see whales breaching. But what they don't use breaches for, it seems, is uh, is is actually violence, is attacking mm-hmm. people. Um, so uh, it definitely wasn't trying to hurt us. I guess mm-hmm. violence, it just, perhaps, yeah, the... I guess what I was trying to get get across is just the the energy that the whale expends Mm. when it does that and the feeling of being so close to an animal using that much energy to disturb, you know, to to crash into its environment. It was almost like being near a volcano or kind of geological process. It was just Mm -hmm. so many orders of magnitude different from any 
thing I've ever seen a living thing do. Um, mm. But it wasn't trying to hurt us. That's what I learnt. And in fact, when some scientists analysed the videos afterwards, you could see that uh, the whale arcs its body away just at the last minute. And mm. so that explained why the sort of disconnect, because both Charlotte and I had seen it coming down on top of us, but then we hadn't been squashed. And it appears that the whale saw us and then and veered off and it only hit the kayak with its petrol fin, its big arm. Um, uh, and that's why we weren't killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you. You bring up the the videos, and we're definitely going to talk about them a bit more later. But oh yes, I suppose one thing that's interesting about um, this experience for for you and also for the book is it like it was something that happened to you, and that sort of was something that you were, you experienced very directly and very viscerally. But because of the the world we live in these days, it was also something that was recorded and photographed from I think several different angles, and. In a way, the um, the realization of this and the implication of this uh, is almost equally important to your your journey and your investigation into the possibility of eventually speaking whale as the experience itself. Yes, I think it was a really it was a, it was quite a, at first it was quite difficult for me that it was filmed. I actually no, mm. that's not true. My first reaction was brilliant. Somebody's filmed <laughs> it because that means people will believe us because because we were unharmed and uh, we couldn't really explain how a whale had jumped on top of us. And mm. so everybody, I think, thought we must have been exaggerating. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then this video popped up. And so my first thought was brilliant. I don't nobody's going to think I'm telling tall tales. And yeah. then and that quickly changed to, wow, this is really weird because it went viral and like millions of people watched it and it was all over the news. And suddenly we were kind of fodder for the kind of news engine, which is really intimidating, mm-hmm. suddenly having lots of people talking about you. Um, and uh, I guess both Charlotte and I were still kind of processing, you know, this, you know, we'd almost died. And then and that, that sort of, it almost became entertainment for people. Uh, and I, I didn't really enjoy that very much. Um, but I did feel very lucky that to go viral on something that was kind of harmless, you know, it yeah, made me really yeah, think yeah. about what it must be like to have your life thrown into the public domain with where maybe you have done something wrong or somebody's been really hurt or something like mm. that. I think that must be really horrible. Um, and then uh, afterwards, when every all the kind of hubbub had, had gone away um, and people started using that video and then another video turned up and then mm. there were photographs <laughs> and uh, I, I was I was struck by how what would have been an anecdote about an animal's behavior and an interaction with humans was then kind of scientifically credible because mm. somebody a tourist had filmed it you know and that had a gps and a time stamp on it and other people had and because it could be slowed down and correlated and then they used artificial intelligence to look at the whale's body patterns and then they identified who the whale was and linked it to a huge database suddenly what would have been this probably unbelieved story became a point of reference for whale behavior that linked into one whale's life and the wider story of the humpbacks of Mm. california and i trained as a biologist um so i did a degree uh, in zoology in in like 2002 before i became a conservationist and filmmaker and all of my training was looking at stuff, writing it down, um, and then uh, sort of trying to type it up and share it with people. Uh, 
And I thought, what, what does this mean? If, if everyone's carrying phones around and can record animal behaviour and then they can immediately corroborate it and share it using the internet uh, and AIs can find patterns in that recorded information, what does that mean for biology? What does that mean for what we can find out about animals? And so really that it took ages for this to kind of get through my thick skull, to be honest, because it, it, was, it, was, it was really over years that I started to realise the implications. But because I'd had my attention drawn to this thing that's so ubiquitous, we've taken it kind of for granted that everyone's got phones and then can, and can film stuff and share stuff. But really, that is, you know, a lot of the work of animal biology and behavioural studies is, is recording and sharing, like, observations of nature. And if suddenly mm-hmm. the, the power to do that is distributed and the access to that, rec- those recordings are distributed and the tools for finding things within those recordings are more powerful, uh, I just sort of followed that thread and mm-hmm. was, uh, I, I just had such a fascinating time seeing what, it, what the implications were. Yeah, and we're definitely going to come on to, to talk about some of those a bit later. But let's stick with the, the whale itself as a yes. nature. Because one thing that's quite striking, um, I mean, we're about 10 minutes into this conversation. And I think you could probably say five or six times you said, we estimate, we don't know, we're not really sure, we yeah. don't understand. Mm-hmm. And one thing that comes across very clearly is, you know, these are the biggest creatures on the planet. Yeah. And yet we know remarkably little about them, it seems. Yeah. Totally. And I think that's, it's just, as a biologist, I think it was just a human being. It's so exciting. You know, I think on land, we're really used to all the big animals. Well, many of them are extinct. Many of them are really far away. Mm. And we kind of, we kind of know what, what happens in their lives. We've you know, got night vision cameras. We can, we can film 24 hours a day of an elephant's life. But a whale's life, you know, mm. there's 90 odd species of cetaceans. And m- me- some of them have never been seen alive. Some of those species uh. at all. Um, we only know them from bodies. Some species are, uh, have only been kind of like intuited. We've, we've just we've kind of <laughs> figured out that they probably exist from listening to sounds we've recorded and thinking they must be from a new species of cetacean that no one's even seen the body of. Um, but I mean, one way of thinking about it is it's really hard to see them despite their big size because... They live in the sea, which is often not very transparent. We're often very far from them. And they only really come up to the surface to breathe very often. And so Mm. imagine if the only time you ever got to see an elephant was when it inhaled and exhaled. And then otherwise, you just sort of disappeared. Like, and you just tried to extrapolate most of what you knew from elephants Mm. from when things, times you'd seen them breathing. That's the kind of mystery of whales. Uh, And I, and you know, all the biologists, they really share this, that, that this, this understanding that, you know, for every paper they publish, for every insight they find, it, it often overturns received wisdom about these animals uh, mm-hmm. and it adds layers of complexity to what we think they're capable of and nuance. And, uh, I, and I, I mean, it, it, I, I kind of, when I was training as a biologist, I thought we knew most of the things about all the big animals but mm-hmm. knowing that we know hardly anything at all about the biggest animals, um, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool on a very basic mm-hmm. level. And in, and in addition, one thing that I guess um, sort of contorts what we know about whales as well is that actually up until relatively recently, 
almost everything we knew about these creatures came from the industry that existed to destroy them essentially mm -hmm. so yeah. it was the it was the whaling industry it was the whalers themselves it was uh you know the 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 bodies hauled out of the water being killed being dismembered that gave us most of our uh, and i put these maybe in scare quotes uh, information and understanding of mm -hmm. uh, of whales Yes, and I, and there's a big asterisk here, obviously, because like the we that I'd use for this is like people like sort of Western industrialized people. Obviously, right. there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of cultures around the world that have long standing relationships with cetaceans, including people who hunt them, uh, who mm. know loads of things about them, and there are lots of like uh, sort of knowledge histories. And uh, but for people in like Europe and North America, almost every and for and sort of for scientists, uh, yeah, almost everything came from when bodies would wash up on shores, uh, and from when people would go out to to hunt them, and 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 you can tell a lot about whales from their bodies. Uh, and I actually I, I spent time with this guy called Malcolm Clark, who studied mm. sperm whales, and he 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 was one of the first scientists. He managed to persuade the British whaling fleet in the fifties to allow him on board. So he went on board the ships where they're going out to hunt the poor whales. And when they were being hauled aboard, he would try and run around and measure things. Mm -hmm. And he did things that the whalers hadn't really been quite so interested in. Like he looked inside their stomachs. And by looking inside the stomachs of sperm whales, he discovered that they eat like giant squids and mm -hmm. colossal squids. And, and in fact, he discovered like dozens of species of squids from their beaks in the stomachs of whales. Uh, so... It wasn't just whales that we found out about from whalers. We also found mm. out about the, the lives of the whales and the other species. But it is a particularly bleak way of trying to understand an animal as, you know, animals mm. as sophisticated as these because the bodies don't really tell you very much about their behaviours, their capacities and their communications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just as an aside as well, it's always very striking uh, to to remember quite how like Western industrial nations were dependent on whale or oil or yes. and whale products generally for this process of industrialization, like up to particularly up to the discovery of like the big oil fields in Texas and things like that. But even beyond that, up until the the 60s and 70s, like you give a, uh, a list of them at a moment, you talk about, I think it's uh, dog food, fertilizer, lubricant, margarine, chewing gum, typewriter ribbons, all produced uh, right up until sort of, you know, the uh, living memory from yeah. from Wales. I mean, how old are you, Adam? I'm 39. I'm 40. I'm going to be 42 in a, about a week. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Thank um, you. <laughs> well, I mean, like when we were little kids, the industrial whaling was continuing. That's the mm. thing I, I hadn't really, I, I'd kind of thought most of it happened in the kind of Moby Dick era. And yeah, definitely yeah. like, there was a lot of sperm whale hunting done, you know, for the, for their spermaceti, which was, you know, used as uh, lubricant and is used for illuminating. You know, it burnt without making, it was better than pig's fat, like tallow. Mm -hmm. You could use it to burn and it didn't have the big smoky, uh, like, residue that would come off that. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, later on with the industrialised, like, once you had, like, steam and diesel-powered ships, they could hunt the faster, bigger whales, like the blue and the fin whales, and really, they were just, it was a really cheap way of getting loads of animal protein. And it, mm -hmm. and, it, and, it, and it's so sad to think of, you know, just being used for, like, food for fur farms or, like, mm -hmm. a, or road surfacing sometimes. It, it feels like an awful, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I feel, I mean, this might upset some people, but I feel a bit like this when people, you know, when I see a golf course, I'm like, what a boring thing to have erected. <laughs> you know, you've removed, if you've cut down a forest to build a, a golf course, I feel like, I feel a bit like there's something almost worse about when you destroy something so sophisticated and nuanced to make something mm. so bland. And, mm. uh, and I feel like the end of whaling was a bit like that. I can kind of understand it when they really powered like the way that people could see in the dark and mm-hmm. they needed them for their machinery. But towards the end, it just felt like a cheap way of getting some animal stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what was continuing in our lifetimes. And, and you know, we, uh, the estimates now are that we killed 3 million whales mm-hmm. um, and some populations, well over 90% of those populations. Um, and that, you know, I, I just, I, I was trained in conservation biology, but I had, I had never really thought about what that must have meant for the whales mm-hmm. and and then learning about their sort of behaviors and i guess the level of damage i had never really considered at all until i researched the book was what does that do to an animal culture you know mm-hmm. if uh, you're trained as a conservation biologist to think in terms of numbers oh well, if, you know uh, if there's only if there's a few of the species left and then they breed with each other they can recover but then but but cultures can't necessarily recover. If you kill mm. all the old animals and they remember the ways of being and where to migrate and the communications and like whale speak that's unique to their whale community and culture and the way that they hunt and the way that, and the way of like their way of being, that mm. way of being can be destroyed. And I and, and that's the thing that that I kind of was left with at the end of the book was was just thinking of both how strong culture can be, that it can live for so long, um, but then how hard it, it, you know, how once gone, unlike an ant, the culture doesn't necessarily come back. Even, mm-hmm. You might look at the sea and think, look, there's loads of whales, the population has rebounded. But what those whales did, you know, how they might have thought of themselves, that might have been changed irrevocably. And that yeah. it was really sad thought. Um, you put me in mind of um, you mentioned uh, forests earlier, and it's sort of a similar thing where sort of forests, ancient forests are cleared, and then yeah. new trees are replanted. Sort of like you know, there might be the same number of trees there, but uh, the richness of the ecosystem uh, will probably never to recover to, to the condition that it was um, was previously. Yes, and I think that that comes kind of comes from just like this continued short sightedness that we have when we just think that that when we look at the natural world that what we see and what we're aware of is is what there is. So, you know, that's the extent of it. So, like, it's only been once we've discovered more about, you know, mycorrhizal communities and, like, you know, forest communities that we can understand that you can't just replant a forest, that what that something's mm. been lost. But we never really take to tend to take that pragmatic approach forward and assume yeah. that there's so much that we ha- can't see and can't understand uh, in our interactions with nature. Um, it was weird, you, actually. You used the, um, the the description of whales, sophisticated and nuanced. And um, I think this is kind of almost a crucial point is that sort of, uh, see, I was going to say we had, we didn't understand that they were sophisticated and nuanced. But actually, as you say, like there are certain cultures which have understood that since time immemorial. Even when you read books like Moby Dick, you know, Melville was <laughs> an experienced whaler. You know, he might refer to, um, you know, uh, Moby Dick as like the, as a fish throughout, a whales as fish, but he knew perfectly well that they they weren't that. And you could totally. feel from the pages that something, uh, you know, he knows that these animals are, you know, closer to us than, than we like to recognise. Yes. But that we do, 
it, I'd say in sort of in modern times and particularly for the West, there does seem to be one person whose work was particularly important in helping us realize that. Uh, and somebody who you speak to in the book was uh, was Dr. Roger Payne. Um, mm-hmm. Would you just be able to talk a little bit about the, the, the history of his work and how it changed the way that our societies uh, look at look at whales? Well, absolutely. Uh, well, so Roger um, was a biologist and he studied owls um, and uh, he came across the body one day on, on a beach of a dolphin that had washed ashore. And he found that people who'd come across the dolphin, one of them had carved their initials in its side. One of them had stick a, stuck a cigar in its blowhole. Others had just like chopped bits off it to take as kind of souvenirs. And he was kind of really appalled by this. And he started looking into whaling and, and discovered really the extent of, this was in the 1950s, uh, how the whales were being slaughtered. Um, and he was so upset to think about how people might feel so little connection to another species uh, that they might just like, you know, like write their names on them and cut bits off them. Mm-hmm. Um, that he, he wanted to try and find a way to connect people to whales. Um, so he went to, so he spent a while sort of doing research and then he heard about a man called Frank Watlington who was a Na- US Navy engineer uh, in the Bahamas. And his job was to listen for Soviet submarines. They had a really sophisticated uh, system of underwater microphones called hydrophones. And uh, Frank had recorded these, these really strange sounds and that he thought might be related to whales. So Roger went to go and see Frank, and Frank played him the sounds, and these were uh, humpback whale sounds. And they were so beautiful and stunning and surprising and complex that uh, Roger felt that they could hold the key to helping people connect to whales. So he studied them relentlessly, and he was a musician by background, and gradually he began to discern that they were made up of repeating patterns with, of units and phrases, and that they had structures in them analogous to human music. And they not only sounded musical to the human ear, but when you actually looked at those repeating structures, they actually corresponded to many of the things in human music. They had things like uh, verse, chorus, verse structures. They used rhythm and maybe even rhyme. Um, the whales would sing a whole uh, song because he, he felt that they were songs, essentially, and then, which would last like 20, 25 minutes, then go to the surface and breathe, and then return and repeat the entire song again. And then over the years, they realised that these songs were changing constantly, and the whales seemed to be listening to each other and coming up with new sounds. And then when they heard each other's new sounds, they'd take them on. And so these, these were song cultures that were constantly sh- shifting in the sea. So he wrote a paper about it that was published, it was the front cover of Science, and... Uh, so that people could analyse the way he'd looked at it and they could see what he meant by, the, by calling it song. Um, and the, but then he also re- released it as a record um, mm. uh, that really became a massive thing in the popular culture and uh, called Songs of the Humpback Whale. And it, it, a National Geographic, he persuaded to include it in the magazine, which had like a mm. subscription over 10 million. So over 10 million people got this flexi disc in their Nat Geo and listened to it. And it just sort of exploded. And, you know, you know, Bob Dylan, Judy Garland, everybody was talking about it. It was on all the talk shows. Uh, he was friends with Carl Sagan, Roger was. And Carl Sagan put some of these recordings 
on the Voyager space probes and blasted them into space along with messages from the <laughs> UN ambassadors. And it, and it sort of took over. Um, and it was a very, you know, intelligent move by Roger um, to both show the structures and show the, the, the complexity so it didn't seem just sort of woolly thinking with the science, mm-hmm. but then to turn into this sort of whale music uh, producer to share it and get it out into human culture and the effect of all of this was that suddenly people started really caring about whales and uh, and the, it coincided with the birth of Greenpeace and other environmental organizations and the Save the Whale movement really kind of was enormously boosted and powered by humans listening to whale songs and feeling moved thinking that these animals did things like we did, like singing, and then thinking how totally unacceptable it was that we should slaughter them so brutally and the point of extinction. And and really that, you know, after that point marked the turning point in the slaughter of the whales. And fortunately, almost all of the populations have, uh, have shown some recovery or stabilisation since then, mm-hmm. apart from a couple. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Do you think there's something um, in this, like the 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 root of the uh, the sort of the the energy that got behind this? Was this idea of sort of recognizing something of ourselves in the whales, like like mm-hmm. seeing, I guess, the possibility for connection and communion that perhaps we we hadn't realized in again caveat in the West mm. could be could be possible. Absolutely, I think I think whenever we find uh we see patterns of ourselves in others even other people you know mm. we primarily relate or at least i primarily relate to other people when i can sort of recognize and empathize with their experiences mm. and so whenever we find human like things in other species i feel it suddenly kind of shocks us and makes us feel mm. close um uh, it can shock us the other way when we see human like things that are bad and we mm. and we get unnerved to see other animals doing things that like that we could see cruel in ourselves mm-hmm. um but absolutely to 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 see another animal expressing something so complex and so beautiful and then thinking oh maybe they're a bit like us that really it really affects people but mm. I, I feel like this this is it, it, it's almost how we relate to one another as well and mm-hmm. you know in the sort of continue uh, the continuum of of othering you know you know, even you see this in news reports, like it's it's very hard when you see an individual person like a refugee's story and you think about how terrible it must have been that for them, that seems to affect people much more than hearing the statistics of thousands of people having to move and having mm-hmm. terrible things happening to them. Um, and relating to other people, um, you know, it, it, it's really hard to do on a large scale. And it's yeah. much harder to relate to other species because, well, maybe they don't, their lives are incommensurable and they're so different that to try to relate to them is maybe mm-hmm. I, like the wrong way of thinking about it. Um, but it, I think, I mean, I'm a wildlife filmmaker and obviously like when we represent the lives of animals to people, we try really hard not to anthropomorphize and to pretend they mm-hmm. are like people. But yeah. the flip side is, if an animal has like gone through a similar evolutionary history to you, if it's another mammal, if it's got a big brain, if it's got senses that work in the same way as you, if it has similar life challenges to you, it lives mm. in the same world as you, 
it's also a bit weird to cut yourself off from trying to relate in that immediate way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and that does seem to be the kind of, um, that sort of refusal of the overlap does seem to have defined a lot of our, uh, a lot of the ways we have defined ourselves as humans over the last couple of centuries. Like, there's always a weird con- uh, contradiction, I think, between, you know, you meant you talk about Descartes and his kind of idea that animals, non-human animals are essentially automata. And therefore, in a sense, that gives us a license to do to do what we want with them. Mm-hmm. And yet anybody who has lived with a dog or a cat or, any, you know, more or less any other animal will know immediately that, like, there is communication, there is communion, there is understanding of a sort, not necessarily the same as between two humans, but definitely something which can be rich and meaningful and sort of seemingly meaningful in both in both directions. Totally. And I, I get I get we just. It, it's a thing that I don't think we find very easy to deal with, which is to, to conceptualize ourselves. We constantly try and erect um, kind of ultimate barriers, like unless they do it exactly like we do it, they then it doesn't really stand for doing it at all, whether that's mm-hmm. cognition or communication or the feeling of pain. Um, and this, you know, this is how humans also have like justified behavior towards other humans, like newborn right. babies. I think I heard that in the 1980s in some countries, newborn babies were still operated on without anesthetic because there was a, a sort of an assumption mm. that they couldn't feel pain like an adult could feel pain or a presumption. Mm-hmm. But what a weird presumption oh to have. And yeah, yeah. like, and... And when you look back on that, you think how cruel. But then you also mm. think those doctors and nurses probably didn't conceive of them as being cruel. Um, but we, the, I guess uh, we have so many, we've inherited so many, like, difficult relations with other species uh, that uh, where that perhaps it would be overwhelming to try and come to terms with all of them at once and this kind mm-hmm. of piecemeal and with other people and this 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 gradual... Uh, expansion of compassion and understanding of damage um you know i think each with yeah. each generation you look back at the previous one and you think ow how is that even possible that they could act in that way but yeah the yeah, people yeah. the people weren't different you know they so i, I you know I, I, I and you can see these debates going on now like many people would find it very easy to understand that a whale you know might feel pain might feel loss might could, could mourn could have complex communications, but they wouldn't necessarily extend that to other species. Yeah. Because yeah. it's just so overwhelming. And it, especially when we're living through this mass extinction and we just feel like such like such bad guys at the moment. Yes. I think that's the, <laughs> uh, um, sorry, I've sort of taken that off into a slight no, no, different no. Like, direction. But no, I, it takes me to where I, I wanted to go next, actually, because you put me in mind of something uh, on that subject that I, I think it's in his book Sapiens that Yuval Noah Harari mm-hmm. writes about like the, you know, the uh, industrial farming industry, particularly concerning uh, cows and pigs. And like almost that we kind of refuse to accept any sort of level of consciousness or any kind of emotional or sort of intellectual richness to their lives, because were we to accept that the implication of that to how we have lived up to this point would just be too much to bear. Yes. And I think and it's really interesting because you 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 can see. So for, for some people who uh, who 
have, you know, people who've gone to abattoirs and they think it's unacceptable and they've decided that they want to try and persuade other rational human beings that they should not eat meat or they should they should change their relationship to like uh, domesticated animals. You can see they will, they will try and work by showing them videos of mistreatment of animals. Mm -hmm. And what is very interesting, I think, about human nature is that it doesn't work. Those, mm. you know, although that might have been what persuaded those first people that that mistreatment was bad, relaying cruelty doesn't seem to kind of... You'd think if, if people acted rationally, they would say, oh, that is bad, of course I will stop. But I think there are this, 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 this much bigger driver of our behaviors that seems to override even what we think is morally and ethically mm. right to do which is what other people are doing all around us uh -huh. and and that's why i think we're in this a really dissonant state because we we can we're so aware of, of doing so many bad things yet we continue doing the bad things because everyone's kind of doing the bad things and mm. I, and you know we can see this with climate change as well you know right we, we still we're not fixing it but if we were rational, we'd be fixing it. But we're, I think, I, th I think there's this very peculiar element to the way that our cognition works that, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps, you know, Yuval Harari would have insights into this, that perhaps the same things that, that make us so good at teaming up together and collaborating on tasks and sharing kind of frameworks for understanding hobble us when it comes to right. um, going against the prevailing human behavior type. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that we, that we our brains can both carry this understanding of of wrongness, but yeah. then not address it, even when it wouldn't, you know, stop us from being able to live to address it. You know, you can change your diet. Most people don't. Yeah, right? it's, it's it's interesting that idea of the um, you know images of cruelty not working because one thing that you, I get the impression from the book we feel could potentially work and could be so transformative again it yeah. almost almost doesn't bear thinking about is the capacity to communicate linguistically yes. with uh with animals and uh whether that be whales or or you know animals of, of other species and one thing um and, and I, i'm sort of probably being a bit clumsy with the terms here because before we can get on to sort of the possibilities of that in a moment there is that question of that you address in the book about what is language. And yes. I don't want to go too far down that or too far into, let's say, that particular thorny um, yeah. area. But it seems that like there is very little agreement, could we put it that way, about what constitutes a language. And, and once again, as soon as something like that is recognized in an animal, we always want to say, yes, but it's sort of, OK, they do that, but they don't do this. And we invent a new way yes. to say that we have language, but animals don't. Well, I find it very startling. The sort of the, at, the, at the same time as we can have su the goalposts of the definition of what language is shift uh, is shifting so often um, within different fields of science um, at the same time as people feel so strongly that of what it is and its specialness to people and I keep mm -hmm. I mean my my particular bugbear is that often people raise like they keep talking about so many philosophers. And so many linguists make definitive statements about how non-human animals do not have the capacity for language or human language-like things. We're having never studied or spent much time around <laughs> animals, but they're really sure about it. And then coupled with this, it's 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 like it's a particular like linguistics. I found as an outsider doing research into it 
compared to being an outsider in other fields of research, everyone seems really quite grumpy and they're constantly mm. coming up with new jargon and ways of describing <laughs> things. And it seems to be impossible to falsify or prove any of the theories that they've got. And I just found that very tiresome and tedious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, it really, my gut instinct was this is a field of research where it's a bit like looking at consciousness, where lo- it seems to be really important to people. So people get het up. People seem to like come up with theories that they claim as their own that get associated with their kind of ego. So they get really mm. grumpy if uh, other people want to change the terms. And, <laughs> it, and, and it keeps and, and it also it get if it keeps being upset by discoveries in non-humans and one of the sort of core ideas is that other animals don't have it. So you have to continually mm. change your definition of language. It feels like it, it, it's an area of very unsettled research. Mm. And, perhaps, and because everybody's so caught up in the term language, I just feel it's easy. And I think this is for a quiet life. Most like animal researchers as well just use like the term animal communication systems mm. for non-human um, communications. And I, Roger Payne just uses the term whale speak. And yeah. I think rather than trying to find out, I mean, but it also I think reflects that because, because like Descartes and loads of other humans have set up language as being the ultimate, you know, Thing that sets us apart from other species mm. um we're really prickly about the idea of being encroached on because then it kind of un- <laughs> undermines our specialness uh at the same time lots of our fables and folk tales do it you know have mm-hmm. have speaking animals in them mm-hmm. and a lot of research has shown that animals have other species have really communi- like sophisticated ways of communicating with one another uh Loads of the research we've done onto it is kind of weird. We just, we, we tried to train other animals to kind of speak English. And if they failed, decided that they couldn't have any <laughs> language at all, which is a really, you know, again, I think kind of reflects our self-centeredness in this. You know, that if imagine if like a pod of beluga whales like kidnapped you at birth and then mm. put you in a box and then either tried to teach you beluga using your vocal <laughs> system, which couldn't replicate it, um, or, and tried to represent like word worlds that that weren't really yours, or then tried to teach you like how to communicate with them using a touch screen or tablets and things. And then if you weren't absolutely as great as they thought you would be, was like, well, no language there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so I, I feel yeah. Basically, I find language is a bit of an awful swamp to kind of get mm-hmm. stuck in, and I think most people on the street, if you went up to them and you said, "Did you know?" that um, different uh, cetaceans have, uh, they've got incredible vocal complexity generated. They've got really, really great voices and they've been speaking in the sea for tens of millions of years. They actually have a, a much wider range, of, wider range of sounds than us that they can make. Their acoustic, their, their hearing is fantastic and they can listen to all those sounds and the parts of their brains associated with it are really big and convoluted. And that indicates that they do loads of thinking about those sounds. And when we hear those sounds, there's loads of them and they have different cultures and they teach each other in different ways how to use them. And in some dolphin species, they appear to have names and they seem to have tribes arranged by who, how different ones speak and that they have what appear to be enormously large repertoires. We don't know if they're vocabularies, but they seem to be stereotypical and follow statistical patterns when we analyse them that show lots of different things represented by those sounds. And if you recombine different parts of them with each other, they follow semantic rules. Um, and, and, that they, and that when you look at the lives that these animals lead, 
which are held together by these sounds, um, they, they, they seem to show behaviours which are really sophisticated. They hunt in different ways and they collaborate and they have complex relationships um, and names for themselves and their groups and others. Uh, you know, most people would say, like, oh, yeah, that sounds kind of language like, yeah, yeah. you know, but the linguists would be like, no, it's not language. <laughs> you know, and so I feel cool. Fine. Let's let's, let's yeah, let everybody yeah, yeah. figure out what language is. But maybe like language, like the, the capacity to communicate internal worlds and to live like cultured lives based on speaking to one another if that's there that's i mean that as a lay person i feel like that's kind of language-ish you know mm. whether or not their language other species languages have all the you know recursion and all the features that we've identified so far in our own language Mm-hmm. Sorry, you got really got me started. I just, I just find this no, like, no, no, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's, it's just really irritating because it feels like such a distraction, yeah, and it feels yeah, yeah. so anthropocentric. And I, I feel it doesn't really matter if if other species aren't as good at talking as we are, which they like, because uh, I, I think that's the other thing is if we just set the bar as being either rubbish or exactly as good as us, <laughs> that's just such a limited worldview. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what it also does, it sort of avoids the enormous sort of temptation and excitement about, okay, if we said, you know, call it language, call it two-way communication system, call it whale speak. Mm-hmm. Once we've acknowledged it's there, let's try and understand it. And yes. God, you know, potentially even talk back, potentially totally. have some sort of dialogue. And yes. so this is, um, I guess, a kind of a, a sort of a, a pivot point in the book because, uh, you know, we, we get to this point and then the question is like, Okay, so we want to do this, but how? And we talked about the limitations earlier. Is it like we know so little about these creatures? Even like when we uh, record them, as you point out, like we don't necessarily know exactly what they're doing. We don't, mm-hmm. ne- you know, necessarily know the the context. As we we all know, like words have meaning in context, and therefore, if we really want to understand it, you know, we we are the amount of information we have uh, or we've been able to build up thus far has been so so limited and so mm-hmm. just mere fragments So trying to get any sort of understanding of the whale sort of language system before want of a better expression uh, from, whale uh, from speak that. let's whale say whale speak, speak. There we go. yeah um is so you know would almost seemed an impossible task and then this is where it starts to get exciting and then this is where it brings us back to the you know the videos that were taken uh, of the of the humpback uh, crashing onto your kayak because n- now with the advances in technology we are coming to a stage where what was impossible suddenly seems less impossible now this is a huge section of your book and i'm you know i don't want to ask you to like summarize all of it but could you just give a little bit of an introduction to some of the areas in which technology has allowed us to to potentially get closer to a system where we can we can communicate with whales okay absolutely i mean it's so let's lay to one side whether other species may may have like language-like capacities mm-hmm. uh and whether if they did, we might be able to understand them and communicate with them. Like the, we know that other species communicate with one another. Like the natural world is full of communication. It's everywhere. And one of the great problems until very recently was 
you know, if you imagine Charles Darwin going out on the Beagle, he would, he could shoot birds, he could grab tortoises and he could measure everything and bring it all back. But what he couldn't do is capture behaviour. So mm -hmm. he couldn't capture the flow of information from one animal to another uh, in, in their communications. Uh, with the invention of the phonograph uh, just over 100 years ago, suddenly we could record sound. Then we could make graphs of the, those sounds and compare them as visual animals. We could look for patterns in sound mm. and not just listening back and trying to think, oh, how does that sound different? We could represent in charts um, what the, the sort of the, um, the patterns within those sounds. Um, that ability to capture animal uh, behaviour and vocal behaviour exploded uh, really uh, in the sort of 90s uh, with the, you, the widespread use of small digital recorders that could be uh, waterproofed and taken everywhere. And I mean, really, it's our phones that have really like transformed this because your phone is a little tiny biological monitoring device and it's got a GPS and an accelerometer. Uh, it can record audio. It's got a battery. It's waterproof um, and it records in a standardised format. Uh, and our I hadn't really thought about, even though my job is literally to video animal behaviour <laughs> and share it with people, I hadn't thought about what everybody having animal recorders every, and them being everywhere, you know, from being stuck on autonomous robots driving around the sea and put on the seabed and putting the animals themselves. I hadn't really thought about that till I went to hmm. conferences of bioacoustics, which is people who record animal sounds. And everybody in turn would stand up at this bioacoustic conference and they'd, and they'd say, I study the bullfrog in this cave or I study this bat or I study like the sounds of shrimps in rivers. And then they'd play all the sounds they've recorded and then they'd show a graph which would visually represent those sounds. And then almost all of them would say, I have loads of recordings and it's taken me ages to like <laughs> even sort of like, you know, label them and compartmentalise them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first kind of big revolution in the recording of animal behavior and like communication is we have recorders that aren't us that are you know machines that can go where we can't record things we can't hear uh, often in spectrums we can't hear um and and then and record it th that constantly so you get like sometimes years of continuous acoustic data that overwhelms human brains in our capacity for finding patterns in mm -hmm. that information and the second part is that we are currently going through an industrial revolution, as it's been called, in artificial intelligence. Um, uh, in, a, in really simple terms, artificial intelligence uh, uh, is... Artificial intelligence tools are machines that can perceive patterns uh, in information. They can often perceive patterns that we can ourselves perceive. But because the machines are constantly on and very powerful, they can be sent to task finding pat uh, patterns again and again and again and again. So they can do really dr like lots of drudge work uh, mm -hmm. that no human could do in their whole lifetime. But they can also perceive patterns that humans cannot perceive. Uh, and one of the most exciting areas of AI is in human language translation. There has been a transformation in the last decade. Uh, in how we use machines to translate between human languages. If you use Google Translate today, you, um, you, don't, you might notice it's really good. And if you used it about 15 years ago, you might have noticed it was really clunky. That's because yeah. about 15 years ago, we used to sort of try and teach it as if we were teaching each other. We'd give 
in a bi-directional dictionary. We'd give it decision trees. If you come across this, this is the right like grammar. This is um, this is the format. This is the syntax. This is the word structure. This is the meaning of these words. Um, those if you spelt a word wrong, it it would find it, it would kind of get trapped. If you used if you wrote badly, it would it in the way that the programmer hadn't anticipated, the program would crash. Mm -hmm. What's what's happened more recently is that with huge data sets um, fed into machine learning, which is a branch of AI algorithms, they have been able to map uh, human languages like sort of giant galaxies where each star in the galaxy is a word and the distances between it and the relationships between it and the other word stars uh, are represented by how the machines, the patterns the machines have discerned from great big corpuses of loads and loads of text. And it works on um, spoken language too. So you can just like give uh, these machine finding I see these pattern finding machines, loads and loads of like spoken English or other languages, and it will arrange them into a huge mm. star chart of the relationships between all of these like words. And the human brain can't do this. This is working in like hundreds of dimensions. That was kind of cool. And you could kind of do geometry and language um, from that. You could, uh, by looking at these relationships and manipulating them. The great breakthrough was that if you do that for English, and then you do it for Urdu or Spanish, the giant language shapes that are created and their relationships actually fit on top of each other. And you, you, which means you don't need to teach a computer uh, using a bilingual dictionary how to translate between one language and another. Mm. It can figure it out by finding hidden patterns within those languages just by give, being given loads of recordings of them. And so you can see how biologists got very excited about this because the huge challenge of trying to find any meaningful pattern in a non-human communication system was us it was that was the problem are we are limited to what we can perceive and the patterns that we are taught to find in our own communications we're limited in how much information we can take in so we're always looking for the simplest most obvious things in other species communications like alarm calls so what has happened while I've been writing the book? Um, and really, it's been startling because when I first started writing the book, I just wanted to see whether people might think about using these tools for finding patterns in human languages to find patterns in animal communications. But this has now taken off to such a large extent that there are these a huge, like some of, the, I think currently the biggest animal behaviour recording like expedition ever is taking mm. place to try and, uh, get data sets big enough from animal communications to feed into these machine, these pattern finding machines to try and see if we can use that as a way into the communications of other species. And it's, it. I mean, this is happening right now in Dominica as one of these expeditions. Mm -hmm. And really, my perspective has gone from the beginning of writing this book, which was, wow, I wonder if we could use these cool machines to find some fun stuff. That would be interesting to, oh my God, I think this will actually work. Everyone uh, needs to know about this because this is, is kind of scary too. You know, if this, is, if, this, if this works, we need to have a really big conversation about whether we use it, how we use it, who gets mm. a say in it, because it's enormously powerful.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, it is so completely mind blowing. And I sort of will press uh, this book upon so many people just because, I mean, you've given us a short summary there, but you go really into the details and the technology and really get a, an understanding of quite how mind blowing uh, this technology is. And, and interestingly for me, I found it quite a corrective because uh, I think we've all become quite suspicious, quite rightly, of big data over the last few years, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when in the hands of certain corporations and corporations who are trying to sell us things. But one of the things that, as I say, acted as a nice corrective is the sort of the, I guess, the open source philosophy, the kind of the collaboration involved in this, people realizing, okay, you know, we might each have our own little data sets, which we could have spent time analyzing and learned certain things. But if we pool them and if we pool our, you know, our technology, our data and our kind of our general will to for the success of a project, the the results could be utterly transformative. A hundred percent. I think, I mean, just to go back to the really simple example of the whale that jumped on me. But uh, when the whale breached onto me in Charlotte and scientists used AI to identify it, what that meant was that Previously, they would look at photos of the tails of all the whales seen and humans would look at those photos and try and match them to other photos in their databases and say, oh, where were those photos taken? This is the same whale. And just when they identified the whale that jumped onto us, they'd switched from using people to using machines. Mm -hmm. When they showed how well that worked, suddenly loads of scientists started giving them their databases and their archives. the organization is called Happy Whale. It was a citizen science organ, like mm. it was a kind of experiment by this guy called Ted Cheeseman to see if he could get whale watchers to pull their photos because they're going out every day. Not only did they um, start linking whales they spotted there to uh, whales in C- Central America and Alaska, they actually have now got whale sightings from all over the world. And they've got over half a million individual sightings They've done something which nobody thought they could do before, which was to identify almost every single known Pacific humpback whale and get an idea of the total population size. Um, And now there's researchers who are giving them their photos from the 70s, saying, hey, these photos I took in the 70s, are any of these whales still around? Um, So they're managing, because people are sharing all this information and pooling it, and because it's open and you can see how it's all being used, this becomes a really powerful resource for human communities. And there's a, a whale recently there that was a sort of celebrity whale called Fran. And whenever she would turn up, everyone would be really excited. And everyone <laughs> in, in California, when she'd come back from her migration and every year she turned up, they hoped maybe she'd have a calf. And one year she did and that they were all really happy. But then really sadly, Fran got hit by a ship and killed. And the community, because they all knew her and they were all connected to each other and to her, are in uproar and they're demanding that they change Mm. the shipping regulations. That's an example of the open sourced approach using AIs to find patterns, to connect us to other species and hopefully in those connections change our relationship to them for the better for them. Mm. But clearly there are, you know, information is powerful and it can be used to coerce and control and uh, i think james bridal the writer have you read ways of being no ah oh, it's so good um so he's a philosopher and he uh. talks about in that book uh how we have allowed our ideas about what ai is and can be to be shaped by its creators mm. but just because the facebooks and the and the googles and the you know, nation states are creating these powerful machines. 
it's very understandable that we're very sceptical about them. But we shouldn't let the, the ways that they have decided they should be used to find patterns in us, persuade us to buy stuff, understand, you know, our, our comings and goings and maybe coerce and control us. Those aren't the only things these massively powerful tools can be used for. Um, but in order for us to have a conversation about using them, we can't just say, oh, all bad, avoid, because mm. then they will continue to be used, but not without our oversight. We have to understand that their capacities and we have to be involved in their use and it has to be transparent. And I feel mm. this is a conversation, you know, with algorithmic bias that's happening in our societies about how algorithms are being used to organise our lives and how if there's bias in there, that can affect us badly. But as we start to turn algorithms we've developed for looking at humans to look at, to find patterns in the lives of other species, we have to have an equally important conversation about how that should be used. Mm. I mean, I don't think it should be owned, that information, for uh. a start. And I think it should be open um, because, you know, there are creepy elements to this too. If you find out how other animals organise their lives and how they communicate, you can manipulate them. Mm. You could, you know... And you could use these, you know, you could do bad things that aren't good for those animals, or you could use that to do things that aren't good for other people. Um, and that's really where I've got to now is I now take what seemed a fanciful notion of trying to understand the communications of other species, and maybe we could talk to them. Now I see the technologies and how, when, how they all stack up together. This is a very feasible sounding thing. Mm. I think we should take it really very seriously because we all need to be involved in deciding how far we want this to go i think a parallel might be like gene editing you know mm -hmm. 20 years ago it might have seemed crazy the idea that you could cl clone a person or pay just a thousand dollars to sequence an entire hu human genome here we are we can do those things and in wider society we are having conversations about boundaries we're unwilling to cross with these technologies yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know we have a really bad track record of making, you know, of, of interacting with, say, uncontacted humans in other places. Right. How should we approach contacting mm. other species? Um, it seems like a silly thing to discuss until it suddenly seems very real. Um, uh, but if, sorry, you don't, if you don't discuss it early, then... You've missed the boat. Yeah, it's too late, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And, and, it, and it might well be that whales don't speak in a way that we could ever speak to them, or their communications... Mm are nowhere near as sophisticated. But mm -hmm. the indications there are that other species are sentient, uh, can perceive the world in ways we can't imagine, can communicate it in ways that are way more sophisticated than we have imagined. So I think the pragmatic thing to do mm -hmm. is to see what's there and openly like decide together how we want to approach this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's all the sort of dark side of it. <laughs> like, I think, I think the flip side is we're already trashing the lives of so many other species without any thought that they might have mm -hmm. this complexity. Um, I think it would be really transformative. I think it would be mm -hmm. like the, you know, the photograph of, of uh, you know, pale blue dot of our little tiny yeah. world floating in space. What? Yeah. Well, this is what I what I wanted to finish on, and I'm sure to come across it, I could probably talk with you for hours about, yeah. about this book. But um, is that idea of transformation? So, in fact, you open the book with not with the the macro actually, but with the micro and the the idea that sort of like you know a couple of centuries ago we had no idea about the sort of microorganisms uh, that exist all around us, that exist on us, within us, and yet now, as you say, when somebody sneezes in the street, immediately we're thinking about 
the bacteria and we're thinking mm-hmm. about this whole world which we which we cannot perceive with our sort of with our, our standard senses and you put me in mind of um i a few years ago now interviewed uh, the physicist uh, carlo rovelli mm-hmm. and he was talking about the implications of uh the you know the the theories about time and the fact that you know with with space time the time as going forward is just something based on human perception and that mm. is not necessarily something uh, you know not something that's inherent to the 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 construction of our universe and i asked him whether he thought the um you know once we had really digested this information it would change the way we looked at the world we understood the world he was unequivocally yes he thought like mm-hmm. if it was properly understood then we would go about our things differently from a kind of perceptive point of view and what I, I suppose I'd like to, to finish on is your thoughts on the transformative implications. Let's say this technology reaches the state that it seems like it's going to and that we are able to enter into this this dialogue uh, with animals or at the very least understand what they're saying to each other and understand the nuance and complexities of their lives. How do you think it would impact upon us as a, as a species? Um, for either good or or ill. Wow, I mean, it's such a big question, isn't it? And it, yeah, it, sorry it, about that. <laughs> no, it's great. I love it. Um, well, I kind of start. I start with thinking what it would mean f- for me personally. I think. Um, well, for, I, as a nature filmmaker, it would be a nightmare because all of our films would suddenly make no sense. Because if you could understand what the animals were actually saying in the scenes, you'd see how cut up we cut, <laughs> cut from one different animal to another and did we, different weeks of its life. And it would just be n- clearly nonsense. Um, I think uh, I think we'd be very threatened. I think that would be one part of it because it would be I think it might lead to a bit of an identity crisis for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think quite a helpful one. Because if we have set such stake by being the only speaking animal, to see explicitly what many of us intuitively believe is the case, which is that other animals represent um, their lives and communicate them to one another, um, where would that leave us? I think we'd have to reconsider our kind of specialness. Mm. Um, I was speaking to a... Uh, this isn't in the book, but I was speaking to her after I'd finished a woman called Sue Savage Rumbaugh, who did lots of uh, animal communication uh, language experiments with uh, uh, bonobos. And she feels that the reason that people are kind of cool with thinking about whales maybe being able to speak, but not so much chimpanzees and bonobos, is that whales are so different from us. We can kind mm-hmm. of think of them as like these kind of cool aliens that that we can kind of relate to. They sing and they do amazing stuff, but they don't overlap. You know, they're safely in the sea and they're different. Whereas when we see animals that are non-human animals that are closer to us, we get really kind of queasy and freaked out. Um, And so I think there would be a sort of philosophical realignment required in terms of our our own identity and how we fit into the rest of things. Um, You know, that would probably be similar to, you know, it, you know, the idea that sort of, you know, that kings were assigned by God was, you know, a lot of people actually genuinely believed in that. And it must have been a very traumatic and strange time to go through with regicides and that being challenged or the earth mm. being the centre of the universe when, you know, Copernicus and others challenged that idea. It, I don't, you know, lots of people 
I'd imagine could probably see the evidence that was being given, but did not like the implications for how it affected their sense of where mm. of self. Um, I think we that, but I think there could be a really beautiful side to that too. Like I, I feel like it would be almost the worst of all tragedies if humans managed to make ourselves and the rest of nature go gradually extinct always yearning for some sort of communication with another always mm. yearning for contact with you know we have these ideas of other sentient life maybe existing in the universe of getting off earth and sort of but the idea that we were always alongside other sentient life with other alien perspectives that we sort of chose to ignore while doing that feels really tragic i i, mm. I always think you know you talked about Yuval Harari before and I when I read Sapiens and I learned about all the other hominids and the other early humans mm. that we used to be just one of a whole kind of handful of different human-like people uh peoples um I just thought how sad you know they must have had different perspectives of the world and we've lost them and we could have talked to them and I would love to not feel so alone on earth as just humans I I know that would also be quite a difficult thing because when you acknowledge and you stop othering others and you sort of allow them into your um you allow yourself to think of others as being more like yourself that also is challenging because mm. if you do do that you've got to kind of rearrange your life um so I think that's the that's the sort of bittersweet thing we'll face we'll um we'll have explicit evidence in the mode that we value the most, which is talking. Mm. Um, uh, and we'll be able to kind of prove it um, uh, if we see that other animals talk in ways like we talk. Uh, it will be weird because it'll be machines revealing it to us too, that, we right. like, <laughs> yes. that, that we've had to create non-artificial intelligences to make explicit the already existing animal intelligences. Um, but it, uh, you know, I, m I made a film with Greta Thunberg about mm. um, how so many of our crises are interlinked, the climate and, uh, you know, COVID and other health, you know, crises. They all come back to our broken relationship with the natural world. And at the core of that is the misapprehension that we are somehow floating separately from the rest of the living world that allows us to sort of continue um, to trash it. And then it, we continue to be surprised when it, that comes back to hit us because of course we're linked into it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, on the fun, you know, so, but then I, I also think of really silly things. Like I was in, <laughs> I was watching somebody in the park pick up their dog's poo and I was trying to think, what does the dog think is going on? Like, <laughs> like if every time, you went to the toilet another a dog came in and swooped it up and encased it in a special bag and then placed it in a special metal box would you think your poo was kind of magic or special <laughs> you know like and 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 like and then I thought like what does that you know that's not a nice thing for a person to have to do every day it's kind of like you know I'd love to have a dog but I really wouldn't want to pick up a dog poo every day and and then I thought, what allows the human to keep doing it is probably mm. the assumption that the dog likes them, you know. Yes. And, you know, we project onto animals lots of our thoughts about mm. them. And I'd imagine almost every pet owner assumes their pet loves them unconditionally. Uh, 
But <laughs> I'd imagine that's not true in every case. And if you had a way of more accurately dispelling your misapprehensions about the thoughts of other species, and you found out that maybe your dog preferred your ex-girlfriend or your neighbour, um, <laughs> or just didn't think much of you at all, would it be harder for you to pick mm. up its poo every day? You know, like, it, I, that's the kind of silly end of this. But, you know... Um, you put um, you put me in mind of the old joke, uh, what the difference between cats and dogs is that when you give a dog food, he thinks you're God. When you give a cat food, he thinks he's God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Look, Tom... Um, <laughs> we are we are out of time. Um, as I said earlier, I could go on talking for for hours. Um, How to Speak Whale is such an extraordinary book. Um, it is available, obviously, from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store. It is available from our from our website, or it's available from your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever you may be uh, based. Tom, it has been such a pleasure today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you. And apologies to all the linguists. I really respect your work. I just wish you didn't get so grumpy about it. (laughs) There's the lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget... If you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.